Looking around on President's Day weekend, you can see who the real Christians at the Advent are. Not everyone who's sinning in Mobile or New Orleans uh, right now. That's all right. They're suffering for their sins this morning. <laughs> Acts chapter 10, we're still there. Peter is still hanging out. We, we're trying to get him uh, out of there, but he's still in Caesarea Maritina up on the coast, uh, north of Joppa. Joppa is modern-day Tel Aviv. Caesarea Maritina, you can still go there. It's very pretty. And, um, and then Peter starts in this... I, this is a little bit awkward, uh, because Peter's in a house, and he starts to preach, he starts to preach indoors. Well, not that you know what I'm saying. It's just an intimate surrounding, so it seems a little bit awkward, and it is. And Peter opened his mouth and said, this is beginning uh, with verse 34, Truly I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the word which he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. The word which was proclaimed throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy Spirit, and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses to all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him manifest, not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God to judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying this, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the unbelievers from among the circumcised who came with Peter all the believers who were among the circumcised came with Peter, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard him speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone forbid water, can anyone forbid water for baptizing these people who have just received the Holy Spirit, just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. The word of the Lord. And when you preach at the dining room table and they're like, stick around for a week, that never happens unless God intervenes. So let's pray. Uh, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and manifest yourself in our lives in might and in power in the same way that you did amongst these Gentiles in Caesarea so many years ago, and that our eyes would be open to your truth and your grace and your mercy, uh, that we might uh, not just believe but see uh, that God shows no partiality. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Um, when St. Peter says this, it's, um, I mean, he says it right out of the gate. We know when you're writing a sermon, well, you know, because you write sermons all the time. Uh, when, you, when you're writing a sermon, there's a lot of thoughts as to how you should start a sermon. Uh, some people think that you should sort of ease into it. Like Paul Zoll said, just read from the phone book for two and a half minutes. Just read from the phone book because no one's listening to anything you say. Um, I don't feel like I have a lot of time in the pulpit, so I don't know if you've noticed, I tend just to open the fire hose. Let's, let's just get started. Let's go. Uh, and uh, Peter does the same thing. So when he says, uh, truly I perceive that God shows no partiality, that would have 
that actually may have been unhelpful because I'm not sure what they heard after that. Uh, because uh, we know that when he says that, it probably grabs the Gentile listeners. There's only a couple people in the room. I mean, maybe two dozen. Uh, and, but we know that the circumcised believers, the Jews who now believe in Jesus, are amazed. They're just looking at Peter saying, can you believe what's coming out of his mouth that, that, Paul, that Peter is saying these things? And, um, and so it's, it's jarring to them. And indeed, uh, Paul says it, that Jesus, is a, the cross is a stumbling block to the, uh, to the Gentiles uh, and it's foolishness, it's foolishness to the Gentiles and it's a stumbling block uh, to the Jews. And yet God works in such a way to open the eyes of these Gentiles uh, who are already God-fearers. That is, they... They were sort of Jewish in essence, although they, they didn't keep dietary laws and they weren't circumcised and um, they didn't do the things that most Jews in the day would do. I mean, can you imagine living in a beautiful seaport and not being able to eat anything, really? I mean, you can eat fish, but, you know, they put some wonderful stone crab claws on your table. You're like, no, thank you, right? So... Uh, so th they're living in this beautiful place. They're doing all those kinds of things. And now uh, they've been indwelled. They receive uh, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, had been poured out upon them. The gift, which means the Holy Spirit now is residing in them. And uh, their lives are changed. Now, through the years, uh, there have been lots of ideas about who God is partial to. Uh, that there seems to be, even though I think at one level most of us would say, I mean, I grew up singing what? Jesus loves the little children, all the little children of the world, right? And yet in spite of singing that, I found that oftentimes I would think God loves that person more than they love me. And even God loves me more than that person, like Kim Kardashian, right? <laughs> um, and... Uh, so it, it, it doesn't make any sense, but it's hard for our hearts not to believe that God likes certain people more than other people. Now, that's true. That's true in one sense. Well, two senses. In the Old Testament, God was partial to a group of people. Who was it? The Israelites, right? The Israelites. But even who he's really partial to, you, you see throughout the Old Testament in the background. Uh, and so God chose the Israelites. Why? Because they were a great nation, mighty in military power. They had such things in their arsenal as a sling and five stones um, with David and Goliath. You know the story. Uh, no. In fact, God's track record throughout the whole Bible is that he... He's partial to the weak, right? He's partial to, to those who the world would look at and say, thank God I'm not that person, right? That's who God is partial to. And if you want to put it under one big umbrella, the group, that people that, that God, the group of people that God is partial to are sinners. That's who God is partial to. Jesus said it. I have, I've come, uh, the doctor, you know, the well, those who are healthy have no need for a doctor. I've only come to those who are sick. Now, everybody's sick, and yet Jesus knows that that, that move of the spirit that, spirit that opens our eyes to see our own sickness, um, that's, that's a rare 
That's a rare gift. And so in our day and age, I don't think that many people would say, um, you know, God's, uh, God is, is partial to a certain people group or ethnicity. Uh, but two things tend to surface. One, we, we would think that God is partial to um, really holy people. Really holy people. So if, if your closeness to God or his affection to you is, um, is manifested in your proximity to his throne when you die, like we could probably rather like this person's going to be closer than this person, this person's going to be, and we would think, what, like who's going to be close to the throne of God? That we would guess based on they're like the best Christian in the world. Maybe y'all don't know any. You go to the Advent, so that makes sense. So, who? Mother Teresa, right? That's the one. Everyone thinks that Mother Teresa's like elbowing Mary. Like, scoot over. Uh, Mother Teresa's uh, a good one, but I mean, really good, wonderful people who do amazing things. And uh, that's why uh, it was so disturbing to so many people when Mother Teresa's journals came out after her death. Remember that? Uh, You can get them. They're they're published. Uh, She talked about trying to run from God and asking questions like, where is, where is God in Calcutta? I mean, there's a reason why they refer to the black hole of Calcutta. I mean, she was, she was ministering to people who still have the plague and, and taking, you know, that, that one, um, just her knowing how hard life was. I mean, if you remember, there was that interview that, um, that Mother Teresa, was it at the Vatican where Mother Teresa did this? And, um, and before any question could, could be asked, she said, uh, it was about the family, and she said, I, I want you to know that if you have a baby, this is, in, this is not in India, but she says, if you have a baby and you don't want it or can't care for it, give it to me before I leave. All right, so here was a woman who was really in, in touch with some really dark, sinister things, and, and because of that, she struggled mightily. And so when those journals were published, a lot of people said, a lot of people said, well, I wonder if she was a Christian. People actually asked that. I wonder if she was a Christian. Why? Because she expressed doubt. Uh, and I don't know if you know how she ended up getting to India. She grew up in Eastern Europe and took vows. And she was sort of an up-and-comer and identified as somebody who could really ultimately one day head the order and, and all of that stuff. And so in order to get away from that, she ran to Calcutta. She thought, Where's the la- where can I just go and hide and disappear forever? But of course, what happened? God is just as much God in Calcutta as he is in Eastern Europe, as he is in Birmingham. He's not restricted uh, by visas and so, or human hearts, as far as that goes. And so people were really upset uh, when, when they read that because, it, because of this understanding that, well, if I know my closeness to God because of the way that I feel and the way that I behave and <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm able to gauge others' closeness to God by the way that they behave and the way that they feel. Now, the other side of that coin, which manifests it today most primarily in the United States, is that God is predisposed to love people that are in certain socioeconomic conditions. That is, that God loves people who are in lower income brackets more than he loves people who are in upper income brackets. 
that is nowhere in the Bible. Right? That's not in the Bible. There is true that God is an advocate for those who have been dispossessed and, and who are being exploited and things like that, but that's because of the whole principle, the Nazareth principle, what good can come out of Nazareth, of going back to God being predisposed to love the weak, the sinner, those who are broken, uh, and God manifesting his glory uh, in that way. And so you can be the poorest of sinners uh, and still make uh, a, good, a good income. In fact, when we look at uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, I'm sorry, I'm going to go back to 5, Jesus starts out his Sermon on the Mount as what? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, as Jesus sang, in order to be blessed, you have to be... You have to exhibit that you're poor in spirit. You have to mourn. You have to be meek. You have to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Uh, you have to be merciful. You have to be pure in heart. Uh, you have to be uh, a peacemaker. Yes, in this sense, in that if that, that, what Jesus is saying is not so if you are these things, but in fact, if you're a Christian, you are these things, right? You know that you're poor in spirit. Uh, you know your meekness, your smallness uh, next, next to the Lord who is gracious and merciful, uh, hungry and thirsting after righteousness. Now, I've never been in a situation uh, where uh, I've almost um, starved or, or died of thirst. I don't know, maybe, maybe somebody in here has been close to that, uh, but I have been in situations where I've been off doing something uh, one memory in particular as a kid, some buddies and I went up on the Appalachian Trail, which is very close to where I grew up, and uh, we got very lost. And we went all day from that morning until that evening without any water, trying to, and of course we were in a panic. And when we came out, all I could think about was water. And I remember all these stupid tricks my grandfather told me, like, just put a pebble in your mouth, and that'll make it much better. And I'm like, now there's a rock in my mouth. Right. Thanks. Uh, really helpful. Um, uh, and the first, when we finally made our way out to a highway, um, a, a truck pulled over, and I, all of us were like, "Do you have any water?" That's all. I mean, there was nothing that was going to stop us from getting to that water. And that's what Jesus is saying. Like, if you're a Christian, there's this hunger and there's this thirst that even if you want to try to get away from it, there's this pool, there's this tug, that, that that's a thirst and a hunger that you long to have satisfied, right? that you have long, that is rooted in your poorness of, of spirit. Uh, you find yourself being merciful. Uh, you find yourself not being pure in heart at all, and yet you want to be pure in heart. And... When it comes to peace, uh, you have a relationship with, with the Prince of Peace. And so uh, what uh, God uh, desires of us, as the Old Testament tells us, uh, is a broken and contrite heart. Right? Our God is the God uh, of, the broken, of the brokenhearted. Now the way that this manifested itself um, in, um, in uh in Paul's uh, theology, Romans chapter 2, verse 11, 
This is Paul, not Peter. But Paul says, For God shows no partiality. All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. When Gentiles who have not the law do by nature what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show what the law requires is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness in their conflicting thoughts, accuse or perhaps excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. Now, Paul could have just as easily have said this instead of what I just said to you. And you're like, what? He, should have, he could have just as easily have said, we're all in the same boat. Uh, we are all in the same boat. Uh, to the extent that the way that God relates to us now, the way that God relates to us now uh, is this. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a custodian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. And you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ then, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And so there in Galatians chapter 3, what you're seeing is the theological outworking of what's happening in Acts chapter 10 of God being no respecter of persons and that we're all in the same boat and God doesn't relate to us as we relate to one another. Right? Because the way that we relate to one another is based on, well, a, a number of things. And most often those things are projections and, and put people into um, a, a, a space uh, and paint them into a corner. So, for instance, uh, the word Latino. Does anyone know where that word came from or when it came into modern vocabulary? 1970 census. Before that, there was no such thing as a Latino person. They didn't exist, but by simply naming it and putting a name on it, all of a sudden, there were Latinos, but what is it, if there were none before, what does it mean to be a Latino now? Or if somebody says, I'm a white man from Birmingham, Alabama. Now, there are a whole lot of ideas that could conjure up in somebody's mind about what it means to be a white man in Birmingham, Alabama. But are they relating to me as a person, or are they relating to me as a projection? Or what does it mean to be uh, a black female Buddhist from Sweden? Right? What, is, what does it mean? What, what the gospel says is it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything because what the gospel does is it takes all of those labels and all those barriers and it just mows them all down. God shows no partiality. He sees us as we are. Not one better than the other, not one worse than the other, but everybody in the same boat. Uh, a friend this week at lunch reminded me of this website I had forgotten all about. And it's called Post Secrets. Do you all know about Post Secrets? Oh, it's really great. So Post Secrets uh, was an early uh, website that started up in the early 2000s. And uh, what it was, was um, it gave people the opportunity, although on a postcard, I don't think I could do that because you could see it in the mail, but you could send in an admission of some thing or some guilt. So it could either be something like, well, I'll use a real one. Like I could say, uh, when I was eight years old with Jeff Beatty, 
we built a teepee out of wood and then set it on fire in the middle of the woods and we blamed it on Danny Carter. <laughs> True, right? Uh, you're actually, this is, the first, this is the first time I've ever admitted this. So, <laughs> sorry, Jeff. <laughs> Uh, his mom, Phyllis, will be furious if she hears this. So, uh, uh, but if it was something you just needed to get off your chest, you'd put it on a postcard, that you'd mail it in. Of course, it's anonymous. And then they would put it up on the websites. So no one knew who you were, but they would just read these admissions. And it's very funny. Uh, it's everything from I've done something really dastardly to the one today, they, they've archived them now. They're not doing it anymore because now, of course, you can just get on and put what you want, but um, one of the uh, confessions today is, I used to think that the lyrics to Elton John's Tiny Dancer were, hold me close, Tony Danza. Um, uh, so, I mean, it's uh, stuff like that, which actually would be, and, and I know the reason why you laugh is because some of you thought it, or, you know, like, uh, Creighton's Clearwater Revivals, you know, uh, everyone thought there's a bathroom on the right. Um, well, I mean, and we were all, I mean, every, I mean, there were these little things that we're all embarrassed about that it would be great just to be able to tell. And why, why was this so wildly popular, do you think? We're all in the same we're all right. On the one hand, you, it was actually a venue where you could just put it out there. You could get it off of your chest and put it out there for the entire world to see. So there was a therapeutic value to it, but also you could get on and it made you realize you weren't alone. I mean, there are literally thousands of these Tony Danza things. Um, and then um, uh, things, you know, uh, very serious issues. Uh, my sister and I both had husbands that deployed. Hers didn't return. Mine did. It's tearing our relationship apart. So sometimes very real things. Uh, are going up on, and I don't think that it's frivolous uh, to put them up on the, I think it's a, this thing is a real ministry, um, giving people the allowance, and I don't know, there's not really a, a comment section, not that, let me tell you, everyone who's trying to be helpful is not helpful at all, but, um, you know, just when, uh, I, uh, the, the recommendation of my friend who pointed me to this, he said, what would it be like if we did a website like this for the for Advent members only. Now, even though we're a big church, I still think that people would read some of them and say, I wonder who that is. <laughs> right? I wonder who that person is. And then we would start to think, that's definitely so-and-so. Right? And because we live in a small community, you may in fact know uh, exactly who it is. But the wonderful thing about having a ministry, a, a website like that, is the moment that we think that God is a respecter of persons and that God treats us differently than other people. And sometimes when we feel like that we're better than everybody else and there are times we feel like we're worse than everybody else, here is something that we can look at and realize we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. And so how this works itself out practically uh, in, in the world in, in which we live in is, uh, is not easy all the time. Uh, it's, it's hard. It's complicated, uh, especially in things like ministry, uh, ministry to the poor. Uh, there are some things uh, that I'm realizing that uh, we're called to do, but how on earth uh, do we do it? 
so one thing that we've done recently is uh, we've had a lot of money given uh, to AIDS uh, ministry uh, at the Advent, and we, um, you know, in the mid '80s, uh, getting HIV was a death sentence, and now uh, people will die with AIDS, right? It won't be AIDS that kills them. It, it, will, be, uh, it will be something uh, else. And, uh, and so uh, how do we minister uh, to that community? Uh, but also, what about around the world where, uh, where there are people where that is uh, a death sentence? Uh, and so the Advent's about to give a $70,000 gift uh, to an AIDS orphanage uh, in uh, northern Rwanda where these aid or, AIDS or, uh, kids orphaned by AIDS uh, live, uh, but that money will not only just pay for their scholarships, uh, but micro-enterprise for when they graduate. So when they graduate, there'll be loans that people can give to them uh, in order to get uh, their business started, as well as education and help with medical treatment and things like that. And so um, it has to be rooted in a deep level and commitment to humility because there are things that the Advent's just not good at. Right? One of the things that I wish about the Advent is that we were more racially diverse. Uh, but I have uh, a, a friend uh, who's the pastor of a, a Baptist church. He's a black guy in town. And he said, he said you know, I don't want you to take this the wrong way. Uh, I don't care what you did at the Advent. I'd, I'd never go because I just don't like it. He's like, not because y'all are white. I just don't like it. You know, I, I don't like the up-down turnaround. He said, my knees hurt. And, <laughs> and he, said, he said, you know, it, we get, he said, you know, things can kind of drone on in the Baptist church, but at least we're seated. And I said, well. <laughs> and so the Advent's not for everybody, right? The Advent's not for everybody, but the gospel, the gospel is for everybody. So I don't get offended when people come to me and say, I think the Advent's great. It's just, it's not for me. Uh, it's not for me. And so when, when they go somewhere else, uh, 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 good riddance. But, um, uh, uh, but uh, more often than not, uh, they go to really, really good places. I mean, one of the things that's amazing about Birmingham, and we've been having this ongoing conversation about ministry to young adults, uh, is uh, we do have another, a number of folks who grow up at the Advent and then they get married, and they're here in Birmingham, and they often go to other churches, really good churches. And uh, I do wish they went to the Advent, but at the same time, I kind of want to look at parents and say, I'm so sorry your kids are going to church. That must be terrible. Um, even though it's not the Advent, uh, they're still going to really wonderful churches that if the Advent fired me, I'd probably go to those churches um, or just listen to WERC in the mornings. So what does this look like? Beyond sort of mission and things, what it looks like is, <clears throat> in some sense, gratuitous grace and hospita hospitality uh, shown uh, to the sinner that we don't relate to one another uh, based upon labels, uh, based upon projections, based upon what we perceive to be, because, because the gospel has eliminated all of that, uh, and we don't even just relate to one another as fellow sinners. We relate to one another as, as we just read, uh, brothers and sisters, right? Heirs of him uh, who saved us. And if you've been a Christian uh, for any amount of time, I'm sure what you've seen is that the water of baptism can be thicker than blood. 
uh, those times in your life where you've really needed somebody, I mean, I hope that we all have family members that are there, but that are there. But I know in my own life, uh, it was my Christian brothers and sisters who are more family. And that's not to say that my family's um, my family's terrible. Christian friends are good, but my Christian friends were the ones who were really there. Right? They were my brothers. They were my sisters uh, in the midst of that. Uh, and there wasn't any sort of litmus test as to whether or not they were going to love on me or, or help me uh, or encourage me uh, or, or to support me. Uh, but we were all in it together. And even in those moments when I was wrong, when I was wrong about things, uh, my brothers and sisters, for the most part, didn't turn their back on me. They helped me to see, I mean, one of the hardest things to be in is a moment in life where you've rightly been wronged, uh, but out of that right, out of rightfully being, out of uh, being wronged in a way where righteous indignation is, is a good thing, all of a sudden it begins to manifest itself in, in ways that you're like, okay, wait a minute, that's not okay. Like, I understand that something really bad has happened to you, but... But wait a minute. Um, in those moments, uh, the Christians that, that were around me were not saying, you're wrong. But were actually allowing me to sort of work through it and, and gently saying to me in those moments, you need to get some perspective here. Uh, you need to get some perspective here. Are you saying that because you're angry? Uh, or is that what you really, really believe? Uh, and knowing that they were coming from a place rooted in love uh, made me able uh, to receive that. And so to say that God shows no partiality means what it says. God is no respecter uh, of, of persons. So I've just said quite a bit, uh, and, and I've left open-ended a number of things, so I'm going to let you ask questions and come at me. In Christian love. In your sermon, you said Advent was a very self-aware community. Is that a comparative or objective? Uh, well, I'll just tell you, I mean, my first Sunday here at the Advent, uh, I don't even know who this was, so God thankfully erased this from my memory. Um, I came for an interview. Lauren and I just followed the I mean, if you're new to the church, let me just say, I'm sorry. I hope you find the vestry people of the day out there because you need a Tibetan Sherpa to navigate this place. And so we, we just followed the herd into the dean's class, and we, we sat down, and Frank, I remember it vividly. He, he taught on forgiveness. It was close. Uh, Thanksgiving was the next big holiday, and um, he talked about that tombstone in Bowman, South Carolina, where it had the guy's name, and then underneath it, it had unforgiven. I mean, wouldn't you like to meet his wife and kids? So, uh, so Cle- he was talking about that, and at the end of it, this guy stood up, and he had on the most beautiful suit. I mean, it was made for him. He looked impressive, perfect dimple in the tie knot, just well put together, great head of hair. Uh, not me. Uh, and um, uh, I, I really can't remember who it was. And with tears in his voice, he said, you know, Thank you for talking about forgiveness. I haven't spoken to my brother in 10 years, and I'm going to call him today. And so here is somebody outwardly. Outwardly you see and think that's somebody who's above it all, who's in charge, who's got it going on, and yet is willing to be vulnerable in a way to say, 
This is where I am. And, and I was sort of taken back. It wasn't offensive, but it was, it was refreshing to hear that vulnerability uh, in, in that man. And that, that honestly was one of the things that God used to say, this is where Andrew and Lauren need to be. There seems to be a rather substantial difference between blessed are the poor in spirit and just plain blessed are the poor. Right. you agree? Yes. I mean, being poor in spirit, I mean, there are people with immense wealth who are poor in spirit, and there are people who are uh, poor in wealth uh, that are very wealthy when it comes uh, to being in the spirit, or vice versa. I mean, there are poor people who are also poor in spirit. So, um, yes, there is a difference. In that sense, it's talking about, uh, Jesus is talking about spiritual poverty. Right? Blessed are those who are actually impoverished spiritually. The, the strugglers, the sinners. Right? That was the big group that followed Jesus around. I mean, this is, let's just talk about how this manifests itself in culture. So, the big group that followed Jesus around were who? We talk about this all the time. If you don't get it. You've not heard anything I've ever said in my life. Just kidding. Uh, sinners and tax collectors, right? That was the big group that followed Jesus. And who were angry with him? The Pharisees and scribes, the religious institutional people of the day who were shocked at, at the way that Jesus related to people in a way that they wouldn't in a million years. So a good example of this would be Zacchaeus, where little Zacchaeus, the tax collector, everybody in town hates him. He's a terrible man, and he's so tiny, he climbs up in the sycamore tree in Jericho. And Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree. I'm going to your house tonight. And everybody's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're going to eat with it? And eating with someone back then? Like, you only ate with your closest family and friends and people of prominence. Like, you don't, you, you just didn't eat with just anybody. And so, but here's the interesting thing, and I think that this is, this is a point we're taking, is that Jesus clearly loved Zacchaeus and went home and was eating with him in a way that scandalized the ministry of Jesus. And yet not once did Jesus say, you know what, cheating people on their taxes is not a big deal. It's not a big deal. You know, they're there, Zacchaeus. Uh, but Jesus had a ministry to Zacchaeus in such a way that Zacchaeus' heart was changed, so he went out and gave all his money away. He went out and gave all of his money away. And so the people that Jesus is interacting with, and sometimes they didn't change. Sometimes they didn't, but the prostitutes and the tax collectors and anyone else who's a sinner, the prodigal sons, you know, they were the ones who were attracted to Jesus' message even though there were times when Jesus would say things and they would say, that kind of stinks. But they were the ones who were attracted to it. The ones who agreed in part, especially with his teachings, uh, were the ones who stayed away. Why? Because of this way in which Jesus loved sinners. Not in an enablement way, but in a way that, that changed their lives. And loved them where they were. Andrew, can uh, you talk a minute about uh, the verse from Matthew? You know what I'm saying to you? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Yeah. For a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I mean, that's not... 
least in the verse, is not rich in spirit. Yeah. Are you um are you a lawyer? I'm just kidding, David. I know you are. Um, yeah. Okay, so this is in the context of the story of the rich young man, sometimes called the rich young ruler. And if you remember the story, the man, come, there's a big crowd, and he works his way through it. Everyone parts ways because everyone knows who this guy is. He's, he's a rich young ruler. And uh, he says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, right out of the gate, he's concerned about spiritual issues, but he thinks there's something he can do to earn it, right? There's something he can do to earn it, which is ironic because in an inheritance, you really don't earn anything. It's given to you. So Jesus says, you know the commandments, and Jesus actually rattles off that if you were to put the commandments on a sliding scale, are a little easier to keep. Right, the ones he, he doesn't rattle off all, but he says, you know, honor thy mother and father, do not murder, do not steal. And the guy's response, all of these I have kept since my youth. And then Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, go and sell all your possessions and give it to the poor. And he went away sad. Now there's a part of me that as the crowd is parting and they all watch him go until he goes over the horizon, where I'm like, run after him. Right? I'm just waiting for Jesus to say, oh, come. But he never does. Right? Why? Because the law has to do its work. Right? This guy has to come to a point where he realizes he may have all these things, but the very best that he has to offer to Jesus is the last thing he wants. Even the best we have to offer is, doesn't cut it. And so his wealth is the biggest impediment. And so the disciples then say, well, golly, if this guy doesn't get in, then who do, if he doesn't get into heaven, then who does get in? And Jesus says, I tell you that uh, it's easier for a camel to pass the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So some commentators through the years have lied to us because there are some people, if you ever hear a sermon that says this, you should go to the preacher and say, that is not true. Um, you have the license, you should do that anytime you hear a preacher say something like that anyway. But um, there was something in vogue for years and years, and uh, it, it stuck. And that is, there was this thought that there was a gate in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle. And in order for a camel to get through it, it had to hunch down really low. Um, and so that was sort of like grading on the curve. Well, it's really hard to get through, but sometimes you can kind of get through. There's no such gate known as the Eye of the Needle. There's never been a gate, never, you know, it, there won't be a gate uh, unless they build it next week, uh, but it just doesn't exist. And Jesus is saying that because what he wants us to understand is that I do think that there is something particular about wealth, because the love of money is the root of all evil, that's what St. Paul says. There's something particular about wealth that does create an impediment between us and in God. Now that actually has nothing to do with, with how much money you have. Right? Um, but it, it tends to be that way. And so the response to the people is right when the disciples say, well that's impossible then. Nobody gets into heaven. And Jesus said what? You're right. With man this is impossible. But with God all things are possible. All that, you're right. If you want to get into heaven on your own effort, whatever the good thing you think you bring to the table is, you're not getting in. You're not getting. If you're going to get in, it is through sheer grace. The impossibility has been made possible in Jesus. And so when he says the thing about the rich man, he's speaking very much, particularly about that man, uh, but also an issue that the, the wealthy have to grapple with. That would be us. Yes. 
what we're struggling with in today's world where we have the Christian West, non-Christian West, God's most effective person. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing that Christianity sets Christianity apart from, from every other religion and world philosophy, that God is no respecter of persons. Like Islam, for example, believes God is very much a respecter of persons, very hard and fast. And, um, and so one of the things that, that, that's hard about that is that Islam has no concept of loss or losing, um, whereas Christianity is all about that. Right, the Son of Man did not consider himself equal with God. Uh, you know, he, he came to serve as a ransom, right? He, uh, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, and God humbles himself by leaving his throne and coming amongst us to the point of even losing his life. Like That is a huge hang-up for Muslims. Huge hang-up uh, when it comes to Christianity. This notion that God would die on our behalf is, is unthinkable. <coughs> So when it comes to that, it's, it's definitely, it's, a, it's not a two-way street. Uh, but the story of Christianity is, when have we ever expected the world to reciprocate? It never has reciprocated. Right? We love the world, and then they threw us to the lions. Right? So, I, so I think that there's a little bit of, uh, and sometimes Christianity can, uh, Christianity has made huge contributions to Western liberal democracy, but sort of, I thought it was so ironic after the Charlie Hebdo shootings, they had this big parade in, in Paris, France, and all these heads of state locking arms, and I started counting them off. Of all the heads of state represented there who execute Christians for blasphemy, and wondering what's the difference between the extrajudicial killing of, of these cartoonists and Jews in Paris than the judicial killings in places in Africa and in the Middle East. None. None. And so there's this understanding in Western liberal democracy, I think, that people are reasonable. If we just sit down and reason with one another, that, that there we'll give and they give and we'll take and they'll take. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't work like that. But the difference, I think, is that with Christians, we're actually willing, we're willing to lose. We're willing to lose and sometimes even called to lose. That's where all that turn the other cheek stuff comes in. I hate that stuff. <laughs> so one of the things that I hope as, as we sum up at the Advent is that, uh, and I'm going to say this and you're going to be like, now I have 50,000 questions. We're being, in, in Western culture today, and a lot of this, Jim, you, you, you got this started, is that there are these false narratives and false choices that you either are so on board with something that you not only have to accept it, but you have to condone it, and you have to support it and do all of these things. Or on the other hand, you have to be a jerk about it and say, no, this is the worst thing that's ever happened uh, in our lives, and we have to blow them up in Syria or wherever it might be. And then, and so it, it seems like there's so much polarization in our culture, and yet what we have is a third way that Jesus shows us the same Zacchaeus method, that there's a way that we can see people and disagree with people and be on complete opposite ends of the spectrum of somebody else and yet actually love them, actually love them 
and be there for them and walk alongside them. And the Holy Spirit being present uh, in that. And so I hope that in conversations like that one that um, people can acknowledge that, um, that, that Jesus is in the midst of, of those conversations and to trust. I mean, the Holy Spirit, I have a high doctrine of the providence of God, that um, the Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth and that, that God is going to work all of this stuff out. He's going to work all of this stuff out. Okay. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.